morning. Our scripture today is Matthew 26, 36 through 56. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. When he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he t- fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. He come, here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and, he, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading with a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. All right, good morning again. Everybody well? Good. I was on vacation. Went to the mountains. Stared at other mountains. It was just awesome. You know what I did do, though? I got there. Like, we left. And I grabbed my kids' suitcases. And I grabbed my wife's suitcase. And we loaded everything in the car and left. And left my suitcase (laughs) at home. So everyone had these outfits. I had three T-shirts black ones, and uh, like two pairs of pants, and a bathing suit, and flip-flops. That's what I wore in the mountains for two weeks. So, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was a great excuse to go shopping for clothes. That's good. Okay, um, so, hope everybody's well. Um, yes, all right, rain time, good. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been keeping up with the sermons. Valerie killed it. Um, Sam killed it. Not as much as Valerie, though. Valerie really killed it. Um, and uh, we'll work on it, though. And uh, so, okay, so today's topic um, is somehow very controversial. And you'll see why when we get going. Um, today we're going to talk about nonviolence. We're going to talk about responding to violence um, as Christians. Um, and... 
what this means for our lives, what this means for our deaths, what it means for how we respond to the evil that we see in the world around us. And particularly as it is taught in this passage, the way Jesus communicates to his disciples here is of utmost importance to the first Christians. Um, so I, I, last two weeks I was with my, uh, specifically last week I was with my dad hanging out, having a lot of conversations. My dad prays for you guys every Sunday morning. I got a text about an hour and a half ago. He's been praying for you guys today. Um, and he also let me know, both of my brothers are preaching in other parts of the country this morning, and my dad is preaching in New York. So like, we're in the family business of Jesus, okay? Um, and, uh, and so I had conversations with him, and I told him what I'm talking about. I told him I'm talking about Gethsemane, nonviolence, reacting to uh, people using violent force. Um, and we had some good talks. We talked about how uh, when he was in college, see, my grandfather, my great-grandfather served in World War I, Priest and Peaks Sr. Um, he, rode a, he was on a cavalry, rode a horse. We have his stirrups and his sword and everything. Uh, my grandfather was in uh, Priest and Peak Jr. Um, he was in uh, World War II. And my dad was growing up during the time of Vietnam. And when he was in college, he was, so we have a long line of like military history family. Um, and I have their, you know, the flags that were draped over their caskets when they were buried with high military honors and all that. And I have all that collected on my bookshelves and stuff at home. Um, I, I, it's, it's beautiful. And I visited their, 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 their graves at various military um, uh, graveyards. And we talked specifically about um, his ideas on, like, capital punishment and my dad's ideas. And he's like, I've, I've always been against it. And I was, like, I was like, why? Your generation is not typically, like a lot of people in your particular, you Southern Baptist, um, and most executions happen in the Southern Baptist Bible Belt area. And why, why are you against this? He said, well, when I was in college, I roomed with, uh, my roommate for four years in college was a, um, an Anabaptist Christian. I know we have a few Anabaptists in the church. Um, Anabaptists span from uh, like Nazarenes to all the way to like Amish, but also uh, Mennonites and, and some Anglicans. And, um, and he said he... He was a conscientious, conscientious objector. Um, and when they are drafted into the military, especially during times like Vietnam, they, they don't carry weapons. The Anabaptists, they will carry med packs and they'll just run around healing in the middle of gunfire, hail of gunfire, healing everyone on the battlefield. Friend info. And he explained to me the mindset that he learned from this man and how it never left him. It changed how he thinks about the world and about Christianity. See, um, if you'll remember, we've been talking about the book of Matthew um, for the last, this is six, uh, sermon number 90, 96 <laughs> in Matthew. Um, and so we've been talking a lot about kingdom. A kingdom requires three things. Anyone remember what they are? Three things. A king, land, and a people, citizens of that kingdom. Um, our king, of course, is Jesus. Um, the land is not just Israel anymore. It is now the whole of the world. God has made the earth his footstool, um, and he rules on high above all else. And uh, we are the citizens. We are the people. The kingdom is not some metaphor for far away time after we die. This is the kingdom of God. We are now a part of it. We are a beachhead of the kingdom. The kingdom is here. Jesus said it's at hand, like it's, it's here. We are taking part in it, and it is not yet fully revealed, so it is still coming. And so as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how do we respond when the king, uh, citizens of the kingdom of the world get violent? What do we do? Um, well, the first century Christians, for the first two or three hundred years, really, the ancient church, this would not have been a difficult answer. It was not a controversial topic for them. They were a people of nonviolence, 
Under any circumstances did they, under no circumstances did they ever pick up a sword to use it um, after the resurrection of Jesus, until the time of Constantine, when theology began to change. But for the first century, the first three centuries, they viewed the message of Jesus in a very monochromatic way when it comes to this particular subject. Um, and for the early Christians, the answer to this question comes in this passage, this particular passage that we're dealing with now. Um, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've just had Passover, so they've had a lot of wine, so they're sleepy. So the disciples are falling asleep, um, and he's waking them up to pray with him because he knows people are on their way to arrest him and violently beat him and crucify him. And he's terrified about how this is going to go and what's going to happen. And he's asking for their help to pray. And he wants another way. And he says, Father, is there another way? Can you let this cup pass for me? Is there another way we can call down the kingdom of God, that it can be ushered into this world? And apparently the answer is no. And so while he's praying, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and then this happens. Matthew 26, verse 27. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, oh, wait a minute, uh, this is... That's from last week. Something changed in between these two uh, sermons here. Okay, I'm just going to go with this. There's that. Moving on. Here we go. Um, (laughs) While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. uh, And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And then the, man stepped, the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword and drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. So we have a violent altercation. These people come with clubs and swords. Um, the disciples apparently have swords as well. We're going to talk about that. Peter draws his sword, swings at the servant of the high priest, hits him in the ear, <laughs> I don't know. Um, hits him in the ear. I was going to make a Fight Club joke, but I'm another generation. Um, hit me in the ear. All right. No, okay. Um, strikes him in the ear, and there's a violent altercation, and Jesus stops him and says, put it back. This is not what we're going to do. This is not how this is going to go. Luke even tells us more details. Luke says um, that Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Um, do you, oh, I'm sorry. This is Matthew. Uh, do you not think I can call on my father, and he will at once... Uh, put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen um, this way? Luke tells us that uh, when Jesus' followers um, saw what was going on, they said to him, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. So their first instinct is to draw their swords and to strike. And then one of them does. And Luke says that after he struck, Jesus said, no more of this, put it back. And he actually takes the man's ear and heals it there in its place and brings restoration and healing to the man who was coming to arrest him and have him killed. Um, this is all very intensely theological for the early church. This communicates to them all kinds of messages about how they're supposed to order their communities and their lives and how they were supposed to re- uh, respond to violence around them. I get asked regularly, what did Jesus believe about violence? Because I tend to talk about nonviolence a lot as a picture of the cross. What did Jesus teach about violence? And as I get this question, 
Here's the thing. Um, it's a hard question to answer. But it's not a hard question to answer because it's murky, because it isn't murky. It's not confusing. It's not, it's not something that we're not sure about. He didn't muddle his words. We know what Jesus believed about violence. We know how Jesus responded to violence. We have the Sermon on the Mount all the way to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in all four Gospels. We have the, the, the consistent message of Jesus' disciples. Um, even Gandhi once said, everyone knows that Jesus taught nonviolence except for Christians. He's always just pricking us, though. That's what he did, right? Um, so it's a hard question to answer, not because it's murky. It's a hard question to answer because for 400 years now, and really going all the way back to the establishment um, of the Holy Roman Empire, we have been baptizing violence. And we have been using it as a tool of God to bring about God's will. And this is the problem. We never stop to think, is this a tool that God has actually given us? Is this a, a thing that God has blessed us with to use? And rarely do we stop to ask any questions about the role of violence in the kingdom of God, or rather the incomplete lack of role of violence in the first 300 years of Christianity. There's not a single shred of evidence that post-resurrection, a single Christian committed a violent act with a sword. Especially not in the name of Jesus, but really at all. And so what happened with Constantine's time to flip everything upside down, to use this thing as a tool of the kingdom of God to this very day? Um, the early Christians would have a lot of questions for us. They really would. And so I must ask this morning, this is what we're going to talk about, and I know it's uncomfortable, and I want to ask you to be gracious. I'm going to try not to activate your fight or flight mechanisms, right? Like, I'm going to try to, I'm going to tell you my journey, my story. Um, I want to ask you to be gracious with me. View me um, as your brother, not your adversary, so that if I, if I push around a couple of your idols and one happens to break or something, um, then you would accept that. Um, because if, if your idol breaks when it's pushed on, it was never very strong in the first place. Um, I, I, want, I want to bring up this topic of conversation. It, it needs to happen in today's day and age. We need to ponder these things. I'm not here trying to change your, any kind of political ideologies. Um, I'm not particularly um, concerned with any political political party that either of you are in, that on either side that any of you are in. Um, I preach the kingdom of God and how we are doing something different. We are a surrogate family, a surrogate government, a surrogate kingdom in a world filled with other kingdoms doing their thing. Um, we have hope that our kingdom will reign forever. But we also know that this kingdom is not established in the same way that other kingdoms are established. And so I want to talk about this this morning. And so feel free to reject when I'm done. That's fine, but I would ask you to receive it at least for a few moments and just ponder these things and pray about them, if nothing else. Um, and if you disagree, that's fine. We're brothers and sisters. It's the body of Christ. It's okay. So uh, a little bit about my story. I grew up um, really my li entire life untouched by violence. Never had to experience it. Always believed my 
um, experience of not experiencing violence was due to the fact that other people in my country had com- had, were, were willing to commit violence to protect my life. This is kind of how I viewed everything. Um, I didn't view myself as being a part of a separate kingdom, a resident alien, as Paul would say. Um, and I became a pastor in 2006. Right around 2007, uh, I was going with a friend it was, uh, to, to walking to the corner store down here and coming back, and right in front of this building, before we, we, we didn't own it yet, we were meeting, as there was like 30 of us in the church, in the Springs Theater, we were meeting over there. And we were walking this way, because I lived on Central Avenue here. And three rather large gentlemen came out of the alley behind us and just beat us up. And didn't take anything other than our pride and our manhood. Um, and they just beat us up. And as we stood up and dusted ourselves off, and it was 2007, so we had to pick up all our fedoras and <laughs> stuff. And uh, as we put ourselves back together, and I put my Tivana back in its cup, um, I had a visceral reaction to all of this. Um, my reaction was not pastoral at any way, I'll admit that, at all. My reaction was not to rejoice that I'm, that I'm okay. Um, I couldn't talk much at all. I had been punched in the throat and couldn't talk for like two weeks. Um, uh, my reaction was not to ponder what brings people to this place, um, what stronghold the enemy has on them, what we can do as a community to take part in the healing of their community so that they don't act this way, so that they don't lash out at us. What have we done? Why did they attack me in particular? What did I represent? Nothing was stolen. This was anger. And instead of pondering all of the ways in a pastoral way, like in all of the, the path of love and restoration and healing and peace, I responded in a completely different way. I responded out of fear. And the next day I went out and I bought a gun. A few weeks later I got a concealed carry permit. And for the next few years, I lived life with a gun on my belt, concealed. Um, and took some training and prepared myself and learned how to use it. Started off with a very small one, like a Ruger LCP, and moved up to like a Glock 27 and bigger and can apparently like go through car doors for some reason. Um, and, and I trained with this and I learned how to use it so that I would be prepared next time to take someone's life. And I was starting out as a pastor and I was studying the Bible. And I was studying the early church, and I was doing my best to ignore the things I kept reading about their beliefs and their ideas, um, and what the early church thought of these things, um, and their response to violence, because it was never on my side, ever. And I would do my best to ignore it, and, and, and watch videos and listen to things that would reinforce my positions. And at the same time, I'm preaching the scriptures, and I'm studying the gospels, and I knew that my response to violence was my idea. The way that I chose to respond was my idea. But it was not the idea of Jesus. It was not the same thing. And I, at some point, had to admit to myself, and I didn't even have conversations outside of it, just with my wife and with scriptures, that the way I was responding was not right. And I began to spend time praying for, for a growth of love for these men. Um, and over the years, over the next six months to a year, maybe longer, 
I ran out of fear. God had took the fear out of me and, and I grew in love. And I remember a moment where I repented of that action, of, of the way I was living. And I took off the gun and I took it apart, gave it away. And lived life every day differently as the presence of Christ and tried to keep the mindset of Christ on me. So this is not something that I was raised with. This is not something that, that I necessarily believed at all. This is a journey that God took me on to bring to this point. Um, the things that changed me and caused me to repent of this was the words of the gospel writers concerning this very night that Jesus was betrayed. Um, also the words of the early church fathers who responded to violence in their own day, which was far greater than it is today, um, in the same way that Jesus did on this night. So for the first three centuries, let's talk about this. For the first three centuries, all Christians knew that Jesus taught nonviolence. They knew this. They wrote about it. It's constant. We have the writings of the church fathers. Prior to Constantine, the Old Testament text that was most frequently quoted by the church fathers was Isaiah um, chapter 2, uh, starting around verse 4, I, I pulled out the, some big parts of Isaiah. It's a very big chapter. I encourage you to read Isaiah 2 this week and contemplate that. Um, and here's the thing about this passage. It talks about a time coming um, where um, it, it's like the day of the Lord, the end times that they speak of. The early Christians believed that they were living in the time that Isaiah was talking about. And they would also argue that us, the church, is currently still living in this time that Isaiah is writing about. But when Isaiah wrote it, they were not. Here's what he says. He says, in the last days, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Uh, nation will, will, take, will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Isaiah is writing about this coming time of peace where God's people will not will no longer have need of swords um, and will, because they will, they will see their way of doing war as obsolete, as a thing of the old way, and now we are in the new way. For Paul and all of the early Christians, they were living in this time. This is what they believed. Um, the Antonicene fathers also quoted Matthew 5, Constantly. Verse 44 says, love your enemies. And before that, it says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist, resist the evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other. Also, we don't like any of these passages. They're not wise in our minds. And of course, Paul responds in Corinthians and says, well, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who don't really believe that this is the path of God. And it's difficult to ponder because we have no place for the martyr anymore. We have no place for the one who stands, stands on principle, not just stands on it, but dies on it. But we look back at the church fathers and they did. Today, a martyr is a fool. It's somebody who wasn't prepared, didn't take care of themselves. In their day, it was different. All of this, we are so separated from it. And we spend a lot of time baptizing our use of, of violence. And it has created in us an inability to ponder the things of the first century. 
and the messages of the early Christians and the message of Jesus on this very night. We read Isaiah and we make it about the future. We say, no, that's later. That's when the kingdom fully comes. That is not what the early Christians believed. We know this. It's not difficult to understand. The early Christians believed what Jesus taught about violence, that violence belongs in the old age that is passing away with the arrival of the kingdom of God through Christ. Pastor Brian Zond, um, theologian and pastor, says the biblical test for the case of love uh, of God is love of neighbor. The biblical taste for, uh, case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. And you can't love your neighbor enemy by using a sword, a gun, or a hydrogen bomb against them. Christians are citizens of a separate kingdom. We speak truth prophetically to the kingdoms in which we live. But we have a different king. Um, There is really no ambiguity amongst theologians and scholars on either side, on either the conservative side or the liberal side. You can ask biblical scholars, what did the early church believe regarding violence and military power? They will speak in unison, and they they will quote people like Tertullian, who, who does not mince words. Tertullian wrote a book. Um, he, was, he wrote in the first 100 years of the church, pretty close to the time of the apostles. Um, and and uh, in his book on idolatry, it's called On Idolatry. It's a book on idolatry. Um, he, uh, in, in chapter 19, he, he specifically talks about this, and here's what he says. There is no agreement between the divine and the human sacraments, the standard of Christ and the standard of the devil, the camp of light and the camp of darkness. One soul cannot be due to two masters, God and Caesar. And then he brings up, I'm going to pause here, he brings up sort of the counter-argument that people make. He says, and yet Moses carried a rod, Aaron wore a buckle, and John the Baptist is girt, is, is girt with leather, and Joshua the son of Nun uh, leads a line of march, and the people warred, if it pleases you to sport with the subject. He's like, okay, you want to talk about this? But how will a Christian man war, nay, how will he serve even in peace, without a sword which the Lord has taken away? We know what they believed and what they taught. There's not, it's not ambigu- a- ambiguous. It's not confusing. There is no ambiguity at all. Um, and he's right. This is what Christians do. We, when faced with something that is difficult for us that we don't like, we jump over Jesus back to the Old Testament and we quote things like uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15 that says, go and attack them with the sword and destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill men, women, children, and babies. Yes, this is in the Bible. Um... I would love to open this up sometime and talk about violence in the Old Testament. Perhaps this will be a reasoning series. If you'd like to, if you'd like to learn more about how to, how to look at violence in the Old Testament in light of Jesus and how he shifts our view of it all, um, I would recommend a book by uh, a theologian named, he's an Old Testament scholar named Gregory Boyd. He wrote a book called uh, Cross Vision. I recommend that book, Cross Vision by Gregory Boyd. Um, it's, it's easy to read, and it, it talks about the violence of the Old Testament and how to understand it in light of the cross. Um, but basically, this is one of the passages that if we choose to, we can use to silence Jesus, and, and it has happened. Um, there is a, um, in, the, in 1637, Captain Mason um, led the English colonists to murder 700 Pequot Indians, uh, mostly women and children, in order to steal and cultivate their land in Connecticut. And when they asked him, why did you do that? You have no justification for slaughtering these people. He quoted... Old Testament. He said, I would refer to you to David's war. When a people is grown to such a height of blood and sin against God and man that sometimes the scriptures declareth women and children must perish with their parents. 
We had sufficient light from the word of God for our proceedings. This is how you use the Old Testament to silence Jesus. This is how it works. And when you see people on Facebook, social media, whatever, debating things like this, they will always go here to the Old Testament as a way of silencing the words of Jesus. Um, but Tertullian brings this up, and he says, yeah, you can try to silence Jesus with, these, with, these, um, with, with the prophets in the Old Testament, but Tertullian says, in disarming Peter, Jesus disarmed every soldier. Again, it's not ambiguous what the early Christians believed. It's difficult for us to grasp how they could possibly believe that. Because for so long, we have baptized it. Something that they rejected. Um, the Bible is a violent book. The Old Testament, specifically, is a very violent collection of writings. But not because God is violent. Because we are violent. Human beings are violent. Our violence is unflinchingly depicted in the pages of the Old Testament. There's a lot of killing in the Bible. Moses killed enemies. Joshua killed enemies. David killed enemies. Elijah killed enemies. There's nothing new with that. That's the way the world has always been. The most ancient solution for evil is to kill the bad guy. But what the New Testament Christians understood is that the answers that God is offering, the answers that Jesus gave them for how to deal with evil in the world are different than the answers that they had come up with on their own. Because if the answers that Jesus has given are the same answers that we could come up with on our own, we have no use for Jesus. He's not telling you the thing you, you could have come up with on your own. In your fallen state. And this is how Tertullian ends his letter. Luke has some details about all of this because it's interesting that Jesus had to disarm Peter because the fact that Peter had a sword is interesting. Why did Peter have a sword? And oftentimes, um, again, when you see these same um, debates in Christianity about the place of violence and, and just war theory and stuff like this, you see this passage quoted. This is the most often quoted, quoted passage when I see this. And they say, Jesus told his disciples to go get swords. And they're right, he did. And here's what it says. He said to them, but now, uh, if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. <laughs> they don't take that literally. <laughs> purse. Um, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, uh, and, he, and he was numbered with the rebels. I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, okay, I'm going to pause right here for a second. So yeah, he says, you're going you're gonna to travel. You're going to do some work. You're going to preach the gospel. And I want you to do a couple things. I want you to, want to gather some stuff to, to carry um, your money in. I want you to get a staff. And I want you to get a couple swords, okay? Um, uh, what is written about me is, is, is reaching its fulfillment, Jesus says. And that's why I want you to get these swords. Um, and verse 38, it says, The disciple said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. <laughs> I love that. Two? We're good. We can do what we need to do with two swords. Okay. So, yes, Jesus commanded his disciples, I want you to get some stuff together. I want you to go get a couple swords. Um, and this is what we quote oftentimes when we want to say, yes, Jesus intends for this to happen. Um, this is how we got our God-given rights and all this. So this is the passage that we quote. The problem is that Jesus tells us exactly why he told them to get the swords. He says it's to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. The prophecy of Isaiah um, is that the Messiah would be counted among the rebels in verse 37, which is violent insurrectionists, that the people would look at him 
just like every other Messiah, as a violent insurrectionist. Remember, as we've been talking about Matthew, all of the Jewish people believed that Rome would be conquered and, and, and Israel would be fully established, the kingdom of God would be established when the Jewish people are led by their great king and judge and Messiah to rise up with weapons and to destroy Rome. And then they would establish their kingdom and kill everyone who was not Jewish. But what we find is Jesus doing the Messiah, doing something different. But the people up top look at Jesus and they're like, yeah, he's a rebel. We have to kill him. They killed lots of messiahs, people who claimed to be messiahs, who gathered disciples and led rebellions. And they looked at Jesus as just another one of those. But the reason Jesus told them to gather the sword was first so he could fulfill the, uh, the, the prophecy that they would think he's an insurrectionist, but second, so that he could tell them, now put those swords away when they pull them out. He told them to get swords so that he could tell them, don't use them when they pulled them out. Um, this, is one of the, this is one of Pilate's interesting questions, actually. Jesus, later on that evening, is going to stand before Pilate, and Pilate is going to say, hey, why didn't your people defend you? Why didn't your disciples fight back? Why did you go with them? Why did you let them take you so easily? And Jesus' response is, he says, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting. He says, we're doing something different than you are doing, Pilate, than your kingdom is doing, than these earthly nations are doing. Our kingdom is not from this world, and it does not get established in the same way that your kingdoms always have. This is the constant message that Jesus has. And here's the thing. I don't think that this is a topic that Christians should be dividing themselves over. I think this is a topic that deals directly with trust in God, real faith and allegiance to Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. It has to do with living a life that is Christoformed, like formed by Christ. A life that is, that you can look at it and say, this is what Christ looks like. This is what God in the flesh looks like. This is how he lives. That is what we are here for. When Jesus breathes his breath onto us, he's basically saying, receive my spirit. You are going to be the presence of me here. And Jesus, after the ascension, has no bodily presence but his church. We are the presence of God, the, the body of Christ in this world. When people look at us, they should see Christ. That's what this is about. This is us contemplating the ways in our life which do not align with the teachings of Christ, how we let this happen, and how do we begin to make it right? Are we willing to even ponder that the things that we have baptized should never have been baptized in the first place? That we have gotten off track? That we are not offering anything different than the world is offering? Other than it ticket out of a hot place at the end. Are we really the people who are bringing a different message that brings about restoration? Um, violence always begets violence. A violent response always brings another violent response. One person hits another, they hit back harder, they hit back harder, it begins, uh, it escalates into war. War always causes more war, and war cannot end war. Only the cross can do that. The earth has always been at war. And oftentimes there's a war that they declare, this is the war to end all wars, yet war still persists and still happens. Um, the cross, the message that we receive from the cross is that the cross displays a far greater strength than the sword. That the cross is capable of not 
of, of more than killing your enemies, of making them your brother and sister, of reconciling with them, of making things whole again. Violence ended at the cross. It was not absorbed. Uh, it, it, was, it was absorbed and, 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 and it was not returned. Love was returned. And so oftentimes you talk like this, though, and the question that pops up is, yes, but what about madmen and, and tyranny that arises and sweeps over the earth? You do nothing? Did the Christians do nothing when this was happening? Valid questions, things we all need to sit and ponder and ponder the mind of Christ that as we do all of this. However, I would point out, what Hitler did with the Nazis in, in the 30s and 40s would not have been possible without the support of the church. None of it would have. 2.8 billion Christians and only a small group of Christians called the German Confessing Church were standing up and saying, this is not right. This is not the way to go. Among them, um, Ernst Kasemann, who spent time in a Nazi prison writing his commentary on, on Hebrews about the wandering people of God rightfully so, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was invited to take part in an assassination plot against Hitler and spent time weeping as he pondered, is this what God wants me to do? And eventually he handled some money that funneled through his hand to someone else. That was his part that he played uh, in the assassination attempt before he said, I don't want any part of this. I don't think this is what God is calling me as a pastor to do. I don't think this is the path of Christ. Uh, but he was rounded up anyways because the money that passed through his hands and the Nazis hung him by a piano wire shortly before the war ended. And the German confessing church was utterly persecuted by the Nazis for speaking the message of Christ in their face while the rest of the German Christians went along with it because it scratched their itch of nationalism. And I've been to Germany, and I've spent time in detail talking with people whose grandfathers fought against my grandfather in these wars, in these particular cities that I was in, traveling to and speaking at and playing music in. And they speak in unison that the German church failed and didn't speak up and didn't do what God had them to do, which could have ended all of it. 2.8 billion Christians in the world. We are a powerful people capable of great love or great passiveness and allowing atrocities to happen. The, the message of the cross is not, this is not God's great act of violence. This is God's great act of love. That's what this is. This is how the early church Saw it. There is not a scrap of evidence, again, that the images of the cross in the New Testament created a violent people among the original recipients of the New Testament writings. On the cross, Jesus revealed something to humanity that did not, they did not previously know, that he is utterly and, and completely nonviolent. That is what we learn from Jesus. That is what Jesus revealed to us about who God is. He changed our entire idea of who God is and who we should be. And other questions obviously arise. What if somebody breaks into your house? What if they're going to kill your family? What if somebody's a threat to you and this and that? There are, there are all kinds of ways in which we could sit and ponder, is it okay to remove the mind of Christ in this situation? Is it okay to remove the mind of Christ in this situation? When can I take off the mind of Christ and put on the mind of the flesh because I'm terrified? And that is how these conversations always go. At what point do we recognize that our backup plans exist possibly because we lack faith 
and trust. That if God fails, should God's plan fail, I'll be ready. I don't think we ever intend to say these kinds of things, but that is what we are saying. And so I'm not expecting to change necessarily anyone's mind in this room about anything that you do in this, in this topic and in this subject. But I at least want you to pray about it. I want you to take these passages seriously. I want you to take the understandings of the early church incredibly seriously because it mattered. Their faith, their sacrifice, their martyrdom eventually brought down the Roman Empire. It could not stand in a face of allegiance to that. It chipped away at the very foundations that it was built upon. How far are we willing to follow Jesus in obedience? I would, I, I would argue a, a lot less far than, than we think we could. It's, it's oftentimes easier to live for Christ than it is to die for Christ. Most of the time, actually. Um, me and my wife have, have sat and had conversations. What do we do in this situation? What do we do in this situation? But our focus in these conversations, if, it may, if I offer you sort of some pastoral direction, these conversations that we have are centered on, oftentimes, as much as possible, they're centered on, let's pray that in this situation, should this arise, let us pray that we would view our enemy as our brother or our sister. Let us pray that we will not go any farther than love will allow. Let us pray that our actions will not be rooted in hatred but reconciliation. And let us pray that we, that we do not bring on the mindset of the enemy, but rather maintain the mind of Christ. We pray regularly that we will not look for occasions to take off the mind of Christ. We pray constantly that we will be prepared that our second nature in difficult times would be to love. That we would be a non-reactive presence in the world of the presence of God. And so if there's anything I can encourage you, it's to pray in these directions. Pray about the mindset of Christ. Don't allow the, the fleshly desires of yourself to be stoked by powerful men. Don't allow it. The greatest power we could ever see was displayed in this moment on the cross. The cross is more powerful than the sword. Always has been. Always will be. Our communion servers, you guys can go and take the elements and spread around the room. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We seek your grace. It is hard to follow you. Father, I pray that we would repent of the ways in which we, tempt, we attempt to make following you easier. It is second nature to us to seek to make life easier and easier and easier. And, and oftentimes that bleeds over into our faith. I pray that we would throw that out. I pray that we would become a people of peace. I pray that we would at least start off by being uncomfortable with violence. That when we look in the eyes of other people, when we look in the eyes of our enemies, we would see our brothers and our sisters. That we would see that they are products of a fallen, broken world. And that our hope is that they would become a product of your unfailing love. Help us to grow in this area. 
thank you for the grace that my brothers and sisters here have bestowed upon me to allow me to teach this. I pray that you would bind us in unity. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.